Thank you, Rosie, and uh, good morning, everyone. Um, can I just ask you to please uh, keep that passage open in front of you? It's page 554 in the Church Bibles. And can I also lead us in a word of prayer? Loving Father, we feel as though we are standing on strange yet holy ground with this scripture. Grant us understanding minds, receptive hearts, and obedient wills. For Jesus' sake, amen. A month or two ago, I had the... uh, I had reason to introduce you to a little girl who at the time I called the little girl who wouldn't say please. I don't know if any of you were here or remember that, but um, I'd like to reintroduce that little girl to you uh, this morning uh, in a slightly different way. She is the little girl in the middle there. Her name is Peggy, and she is an identical twin with the little girl Mary who's on your left and their slightly older sister, Kathleen, is on your right. So Peggy, little girl who wouldn't say please, is little girl clinging to her mother and looking rather worried. The mother's name is Edith, and you can see that there is no sign of Daddy. Uh, Daddy uh, never met the two twins, Mary, uh, Mary and Peggy, because he never came back from the First World War. Edith raised those three little girls... Uh, single-handedly, without much money, uh, but yet was a wonderful mother to them. Uh, Peggy, uh, the little girl I'm focusing on, was um, quite sickly as a baby. In fact, at one point, was not expected to survive the night. She did survive the night, and she eventually lived to the grand old age of 94, and in the process bore four children of her own. And there she is, uh, two two girls and two boys. And there she is with one of her, the first of her boys, whose name is, was and is Jonathan. And um, (laughs) he is wearing, I think, his christening robe, with a picture taken in the back garden of their home in Buckingham Road. So that's uh, Peggy, grown up as a mother and one of her four children. Uh, So Jonathan, in due course, grew up himself and married um, Sarah. And Sarah bore two children, a boy and a girl. And there's their little girl, whose name is Rachel. Her hair never did quite grow in all the right directions, but uh, we love her anyway. And just to bring the story up to date, Rachel herself grew up and uh, uh, three and a half weeks ago presented us with our first grandchild. Thank you very much. And uh, his name is Thea. So that's Rachel and Thea. So that's four generations, four mothers, four wonderful mothers. And thinking about those four Mothers, I can't imagine in my wildest nightmares that any of them would have neglected or abused or certainly not abandoned any of their children. They were, they are wonderful 
mothers. It makes me think of a question that the Lord asked through the prophet Isaiah. The question is, can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Now, Peggy, my mother, knew that scripture and also a quite a well-known hymn by William Cowper uh, that also includes that verse as, uh, as uh, a question and an answer. And my mother's response to that question was, surely not. Surely a mother could never forget the baby at her breast, could never not have compassion on the child she has born. And yet the scripture goes on to say, actually, yes, she might forget. She might forget. And it is true. There is, did you know there's such a thing as forgotten baby syndrome? I came across that a few days ago when I read the very tragic tale of uh, an Australian mother who left her toddler in a very hot car, had forgotten she had left her child in the car, and the child overheated and very sadly died. And the mother was excused, obviously devastated, but excused legally because it was agreed that even on those circumstances, her mother could forget her child. And another recent story is that um, a mother uh, disowned and disinherited her daughter because the daughter at the age of 19 had run away with a young man <coughs> and, and married him and, and, and remains married to him of whom the, the mother did not approve. So the answer is yes, there are circumstances under which a mother might neglect or abandon or not have compassion on her child. But, the Lord says to his people, even though others might do that, I will not forget you. And scripture is full of promises, reassuring promises of God's love towards, unfailing love towards his people. We've just heard, read uh, by Rosie, part of Psalm 22. Uh, the next psalm, another psalm of David, has this, these famous words. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Uh, St. Scripture is full of statements of faith and reassurance like that. How surprising, then, how shocking that the previous psalm begins with the same man, the same believer, David, shouting out, crying out these words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I'm not aware of any other statement in the Old Testament as extreme as this. Certainly, sometimes God seems a long way away. I don't think there's any other statement in the Old Testament where God seems to have abandoned one of his own. And as the uh, psalm progresses, this statement of abandonment is unpicked and elaborated. So first of all, in verses 1 and 2, we have this expanded statement of abandonment, forsaken, and so far from saving me. It isn't just that David feels that God is a long way away, 
It is that he needs deliverance. He needs help. He needs saving from a very bad situation. And God is doing nothing about it. Abandoned. Verses 6 to 8. Not only abandoned, but tormented. He is surrounded by those who hate him and are ridiculing him and mocking him. Uh, Look at these words here. They're saying to him, he trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. He is having his faith in the Lord attacked mercilessly, viciously, abandoned, tormented, and besieged. Verses 12 to 18. Do you see in these verses here how these how he's being attacked physically, and his attackers are given the masks of wild animals, marauding bulls, roaring lions, a vicious pack of dogs, waiting to tear him apart. Very extreme statements in these verses. Here is a man at the, uh, on the brink of death. This is a picture, not simply, well, not simply of an illness, but it's looking very much like an execution. I want to pause in my description of the psalm, psalm from him and say, this was David's experience and this became a psalm to be put in the mouths of other believers who would be going through the same or a similar kind of experience. And there may be, there will be people here this morning who have been, or at some point in the future, will be, or at this present moment in time are, feeling like this. That something has happened, you're in some desperate situation, you're feeling helpless and hopeless, you've been crying out to God for hours, days, weeks, months, or even years, and you hear no answer. Your prayers go up, and they bounce back off the ceiling. You feel, you hear, you receive nothing. That was David's experience in this psalm. And it may have been, or it may, maybe it will be, your experience. If so, let me point out, even from this part of the psalm, the elements of great hope. Firstly, David does not stop calling God his God. He does not get to the point where he says, well, I no longer am a believer. There is no God. He continues to cry out to my God, my God. So therefore, he is taking his complaint to God. And you know, it's a wonderful thing to be able to take your complaint to God. And, for example, to show God his own handwriting 
and say, look, Lord, here in your word, you have said, you have promised. Now then, fulfill your word. Answer your promise. Take your complaint to God, just as David did. Another thing that David does is to remember, in the midst of his agony and his suffering, he remembers God's faithfulness to his people. There's a long, long history of God's love and faithfulness to his people, both before and after the coming of his dear son, Jesus Christ. And David reflects on this in verses 3 to 5. In you our fathers put their trust. Do you see the argument? Lord, you have helped us in times past, so therefore I believe that you can help me now. And it's more personal than that too. In verses 9 to 11, David recalls the Lord's lifelong care and concern for him. In verse 9, God was the very midwife who brought him safely out of the womb. God, in verse 10, God was the very parent on whom the troubled child could cast himself or herself for comfort and for succor and for reassurance. God has been good to you. God has brought you to this day in your life. Think back to all his mercies and again use those as an argument of saying, now Lord, continue to care for me even when I, as I cannot hear or see you. And then in verses 19 to 21, a flurry of verbs in the prayer to ask God to come and deliver, to rescue and to save. I hate it when I do this, but in our new international version, uh, you know when you drive, you sometimes take a a wrong turn. Well, I certainly have. Um, In the new international version, verse 21, I'm afraid they've taken a wrong turn. And if you glance to the bottom, um, or verse 21, you will see a little footnote that says, instead of um, a prayer for God to save, um, save me from the horns of wild oxen, a little footnote that says, you have heard. And scholars are pretty much agreed that is the correct interpretation. The, in a single word, at the end of verse uh, 21, is that expression, you have heard. Well, I believe that's the correct one. I, say, I, I hate myself having to point that out because on the one hand, I'm not qualified to do so. And on the other hand, I certainly do not want you to think that you can't trust the version of the Bible that you have in your hands. Well, of course you can. But Bible translators are not perfect and have taken a long turn on that verse. That in fact, that statement at the end of verse 21, you have heard, is the turning point, the pivot of this entire psalm. But if there's any doubt about that, there isn't any doubt about the last verse of the psalm, which we didn't have read because we were returning to this, this psalm, God willing, next week. The very last expression in the psalm, he has done it. 
So it can be seen two ways, end of verse 21 and also the end of verse 31. David's prayer was finally heard. And in fact, as we will see, again God willing next week, his sufferings will be turned not simply to lack of suffering, but to victory, to triumph, to over, uh, overpowering grace. But this cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You probably know better from the New Testament than from the Old Testament. Because many of you will know that these were words, the words that Jesus himself quoted as he hung suffering and dying on the cross. Matthew 27 and verse 46 and also uh, quoted in Mark's Gospel. Once in the Old Testament and once in the New. It's as though Jesus couldn't find words on his own to express his feelings at the time. And so he draws on that ancient psalm written a thousand years earlier and makes them his own. Why? Why did Jesus utter those words from the psalm? Well, oceans of ink have been poured over acres of paper in trying to understand, or begin to understand, what Jesus meant by those words. Could it be that Jesus was feeling sorry for himself? Why me? What have I done to deserve this agonizing, brutal, cruel death? Could it be that our Lord was questioning? It was a straightforward, why? Why, Lord, explain to me what I'm doing here. What's this supposed to achieve? Could it be that he was doubting? Could it be that in that dark moment... He was having his own crisis of faith. That God perhaps had not really abandoned him, but Jesus felt abandoned. Or could it be, here's a strange one, could it be that actually when Jesus quoted these words, he actually intended them to be words of exulting. How does that work? Well, it works because the, the, the the suggestion would be that Jesus in quoting the first few words of the psalm had in mind the entire psalm, including the triumph with which the psalm ends. That's actually quite a a serious and quite a popular suggestion. Whatever truth there may be in some or uh, of those, I'm going to uh, put it to you like this. That when Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was a real abandonment. Jesus has been left on his own to die. God, his father, is not delivering him from that cruel death, from that criminal's execution. At previous times of crisis... The Lord, had, uh, the Lord Jesus has been comforted by a word from heaven. You are my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. In the garden of Gethsemane, an angel came 
to help and to comfort him. But now there's no reassuring word. There is no comforting angel. Just three hours of darkness at midday. A real abandonment. He's being left to die. Why? I'm just going to go back to the question. No, I can't go back. <laughs> um, in asking the question, why was Jesus abandoned while he hung on the cross? Scripture gives a raft of answers. I would love to go through the 53rd chapter of Isaiah with you, but I'd then be stealing the thunder from Will, who'll be preaching from that chapter in two weeks' time. Um, I would love to point out uh, that that amazing, miraculous, prophetic chapter has expressions like this. It was the will of the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. But I'm not going to quote that because I don't want to see Will's thunder. I would love to point out to you that in that 53rd chapter of Isaiah, there are no less than 14 statements of what we call substitutionary atonement. The servant of the Lord, the suffering lamb, standing and dying and suffering in our place. But I'm not going to say that either. I will direct you to a couple of the many statements from the New Testament that begin to explain for us what was going on. From Romans chapter 5 and verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, deserving of punishment, deserving of death, Christ died for our sins. Or even more pertinently to this cry from the cross, Romans chapter 8. He, that is God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. There's a sense there of handing him over to his executors, but handing him over for us all. Do you see that sense of God being active in the abandonment to death of Jesus Christ. And the argument there is a wonderful argument. If God can give you and I that ultimate gift, how will he not, asks Paul, not um, along with him, Graciously give us all things. Certainly not all things that we want or asked for, but all things that he judges in his wisdom and grace that we really need. God once abandoned his beloved son so that we might never be abandoned. He gave him up to death so that we might have life. He laid on him the burden of our sin so that we might be pardoned. There's more to be said from this psalm, spoken something of the sufferings of Christ. The psalm also speaks of victory, of triumph, of glory.
But for the moment, let me just ask you, what do you think? Do you agree that Scripture teaches this truth? How do you feel? Do you feel something of the gratitude for the love of God in Christ, for what he has done for you? And what will you do with that gratitude? Will you allow that gratitude to overflow in trust and in loving obedience? A word of prayer together. Lord, we believe. Lord, we feel your gift to be so great and so loving and so wonderful. We realize that love so amazing, so divine, demands nothing less than our all. Amen.